Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Listeners, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio um, with Jacob and Lalita. Good morning and welcome. Good to be here this morning. It's a fresh morning out there. Yep. So let's move on with the program. We've got a packed program. We've got two interviews, interesting ones actually. One is with um, um, Alan Broughton, who, is, uh, who has written a book and is going to book launch. I'll tell you more details about it. And the other one is an update on um, the West Papuan situation, which we, of course, never hear um, on mainstream media. But, of course, there's lots of news from Green Left Weekly. So let's go, uh, Jacob, the latest. Well, I guess um, probably the, most, the biggest story that sort of um, struck of me in this sort of past, you know, this past days, um, listeners probably might have heard there was a fire at um, a Footscray factory, so um, sad. which tragically um, claimed um, three lives. Um, and um, I'm going to sort of take, source some of this from this ABC article I printed, um, which is um, with the headline, Suspicious Footscray Fire Claims Three Lives at an Abandoned Factory. And the important thing is this brings housing crisis in the spotlight because the three people who were living there were, um, were squatters. Mm. Um, and, um, and so it's, it sort of says something, you know, about not that it's necessarily wrong to squat, um, but it's at the. At it is not wrong to squat. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of like it says something about you know society that this tragedy could occur when you know when we were suffering a crisis of a lack of affordable housing, That's right. lack of public housing, and there's also um, another context, and this is something that we're going to probably do more research on. Um, but there was uh, a lot of um, information floating around that this um, site that was burnt down um, was. Um, Got to be planned to be demolished at some point anyway, and turned into. And it was private. there plans to develop. There was something about sixty-three million dollars being paid for um, starting some building project there. Yes, um, yeah, that's basically it. Um, it was going to be turned into some more shopping ex- centres or, or expensive apartments, oh, basically. Because right now terrible. in Footscray, there's um, there's a lot of um, Footscray is currently kind of undergoing like a. Uh, a boom, really. A boom of gentrification yeah. because people realise it's close to the city. Yes. And so there's um, there's this big push um, to gentrify the place. To gentrify the place, but yeah. even though they haven't really completely, as someone who lives in Footscray, it's like not completely gentrified yet. Thank goodness. It's sort of half and half, um, and the rent is still affordable. Uh, well, affordable, not quite. but not <laughs> affordable in the context of a very um, terrible. 
um, housing sort of markets. <laughs> so there's sus- suspicious circumstances. Somebody was arrested this morning, according to the news I heard on the radio on the yep. way here. Some 50-year-old, 52-year-old guy, yep. you know, God knows what, what's, yeah, what so the story just, is. Um, just yesterday, um, I mean, several hours ago, the police arrested someone on in the CBD um, who has um, who was suspected of having actually caused that fire. Um, so it, well, this, could actually, this could be a murder case. We're not so sure what has motivated it. Um, I mean, there's some inclination, um, mumblings around that could have been, you know, hate crime towards the homeless. This or he was set up by large companies. Who knows? Yeah. So Anything we'll find, be, we'll find um, more information, but it's uh, a, to- a total tragedy and there will be... Um, Many listeners probably know about um, the No Homeless Ban action oh, that's happening yes. tomorrow. Um, yes. At, oh, tonight. It's happening tonight. Tonight. So 4 p.m., isn't it? 4 p.m. Um, and in light of um, this tragedy, um, there will be a vigil um, held at the, at, this, um, at the protest at Town Hall from 9 p.m. Mm. Um, to pay our respects and, um, to these um, lives that were lost. It's, it's more than a tragedy. It's a total disregard for human life. You know, I don't care um, where they come from, what what they're doing. It to deliberately light a fire, knowingly, um, but knowing that there are three people sleeping in that place, it's a it's an absolute crime. You know, to, to, and and total. You've got to in, you've got to be inhumane to light a to do a, a thing like that. So it is obviously a. a a murder case. I hope they treat it as a murder case. It's just despicable. And from um, some of the bits I read this morning, the uh, mayor of Melbourne was being accused um, of initiating the, you know, homeless people who were sleeping out rough in the city because he's brought in a law to criminalize that. People are moving out of the suburbs. So it's affecting more um, the, the the councils you know, are surrounding Melbourne. The homeless people are go, going there for safety. So he's of course vehemently denying it. But it's a whole approach that's bad. Yeah. Well, um, I think in this article, Spike from the um, homeless person union who told in um, he told ABC Radio Melbourne that you know in more long-term affordable to secure housing is needed. You know, and he says here, we have people in dire straits and who find living in the street as their only option. And, you know, part of something he says here that I think is very true is that, you know, we need to stop questioning and vilifying them and start talking to them. Hmm. Um, when, When it comes to all these policies that are, you know, that are supposedly meant to address homelessness, they never um, actually... deal with consulting with actual homeless Nobody talks people to these and address people. Their, ac- yeah. their actual experiences. So many of them are unwell. So many of them have been long-term unemployed. You know, it's just not right to, to treat people like that. And uh, I think I actually want to put attention and criticise Robert Doyle's kind of statement in response to this um, tragedy. And he basically said, oh, you know, the city of Melbourne has similar issues with empty buildings you know, we've had a real problem with areas like the old, council, old cancer council up the corner of Rothdown, Victoria. That's a pretty unpleasant place, he told. And then he says that in the context of the fact that he's absolutely offering no alternative. He's offering no public housing and he's kicking people off the streets. And I find that... They don't pretty, pay rates, so he doesn't care. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty... Which I find... I find his comments, when you take them, go look underneath, they are pretty... 
you know, disgraceful considering how little he actually does. It's despicable. An elected person like that showing such disregard for human beings yeah. who are, you know, um, suffering um, in absolute poverty um, and they can't afford housing. You know, they, they voted him in and he does nothing about the poor people. Mm. But anyway, let's move on. I it's, it's just horrible. Um, I guess um, in terms of um, other stories... Um, do you I want to talk about the two criminals. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I don't want to get sued. But it's it's the um, um, Netanyahu and um, well, Sri Lankan fellow who came. Not Rajapaksa. It is Rajapaksa, isn't it? Um, was given... Um, Deakin University gave gave him a rousing welcome and gave him a doctorate in um, in a, um, a ceremony. And there was protests out there. The Sri Lankan uh, people, uh, Tamils, were out there saying, "You cannot give a doctorate to a man who has been part of a regime that has killed so many lives." Sorry, I'm flicking through the papers here to see where that article is, but um, it's just an absolute disgrace that. We have um, hosted two people who have killed or have been uh, party to uh, killing thousands and thousands of people, one in Palestine, one in Sri Lanka. And um, what do you say? What do you say to, to the sort of actions that a university, Deakin University, could give um, a doctorate to, to a Sri Lankan uh, official who was a minister and um, uh, I, I just find this whole thing so appalling I can't even talk about it how, how did they do that in, in, with a clear conscience to um, give someone a doctorate even though they are well known to um, be part of or having been part of the killing of thousands of people in Sri Lanka I don't understand it what did they have to gain by giving these people the sort of the doctorates, those false doctorates that really amount to nothing in many ways? They haven't studied for it. It's just like an honor thing. And, and the claim is, oh, Sri Lanka is a safer place. It's almost like you know, supporting the government's position to enable yeah. them to send refugees back. And we know that refugees who go back are arrested and they're treated badly because even though he um, invited them, oh, all of you can come back, we welcome you. But people are being arrested and charged with illegally leaving Sri Lanka. So, you know, it's, it's just unacceptable that, that Deakin University would do a thing like this. Actually, just on, on the topic of, um, this is just a small thing I saw on social media um, this morning, um, but... Um, have you seen? I've seen this clip shared around. Of it's basically the last episode of um, this um, talk show in Israel, um, and in the last five minutes, um, the host basically implored people because um, he's he's Israeli himself, so it's quite brave of him to do this. He basically implored everyone to stand up for Palestinian rights. Really, and and that Radical. and and that, <laughs> and that we are living in that Israel is apartheid, except. Because he's, you know, he's he's Israel from he's in an Israeli talk show. He said, "We're on the good side of." And he's the host of the program. Yes. So wow. Unfortunately, obviously, this his program was cancelled due to poor ratings, and <laughs> he's already gotten he's been in trouble previously yeah. um, from the Israeli government for criticising Netanyahu. Hmm. 
But he did end um but he did end his show with like a big sort of bang, you know, um making a big long monologue about how we need to stand up for Palestine and we need to stand up against, you know, Israel's oppression of of Palestine. Yeah, absolutely. Um so that's been shared rightly on social media with over um two thousand shares. So um that's a wow. pretty positive um no, no way to end your show on. What do you mean end the show? Because it's the <laughs> last episode of the show. show. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I thought you were talking about this show for a no, minute. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I get some other, any other news um, to share, Lali? Oh, well. Before we move on to our first interview. Um, well, the penalty rate cuts are a big year, isn't it? Yeah. Well, we, um, there's, um, there's going to be some, uh, unions are starting to sort of speak up about it, and it's pretty what I've been pretty um, impressed with is how, you know, staunch um, the CFMEU have been at, you know, st- speaking out against mm. the um, penalty rate cuts, especially since their union is probably not going to be that affected by this. Yeah. Um, but sh- but it's a, a real demonstration of solidarity. Absolutely. The, because, um, they, I mean, they start with one union and then oh, one group of workers and they keep going. That's what the history has always shown. You know, if you don't, there's the famous poetry. You know, they came for the 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 gay people. I I'm not gay. They came for the the migrants. I'm not migrant. But when they came for me, there was no one to support me. You know, it's it's a longer poem than that. I'm just uh, truncating it. Yeah. But finally, the the some unions are starting to jack up. This enough is enough. Mm. This is just overstepping the mark, and thousands and thousands of young people are going to lose out. It's just absolutely, I mean, they're already living on a shoestring budget, and this is going to make it that much worse. Yeah. And families who survive or depend, and this shouldn't, shouldn't be the case that people have to depend on penalties in the first place. Now that they're actually dependent on the penalty rates to make ends meet, uh, means that this is going to be a big blow to their living standards. Mm. And there, there you have creation of another lot of homeless people because they won't be able to pay rent if they get, like one woman I, I saw reading a report, she was, I think she earned about $600 a week or something, and she was going to lose 100 bucks a week. Mm. That's a big drop. Yeah, it's a big drop. How mm. the hell do you manage your, your you know, two, three hundred um, rent? And if you have kids, how are you going to cope? Transport, food, bills, it all adds up in the end. And it's impossible to make a living on on that sort of money, and you're supposed to be working. Hmm. And I think um, I think there's also there's also this other element that you know the workers that are spending um, spending their Sundays working are actually sacrificing personal time that they would never get. And there's this big sort of myth um, pushed by you know the big end of town that you know we live in a seven day economy. Well, oh really? And how come they don't work seven days? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't see um, any of the public servants or the people who are in government positions working on a Saturday and Sunday. And all these bosses have pushed this view. They don't work seven days. They go home and enjoy the Sunday with the family. Thank you very much. And if you're a Christian, you're not supposed to be working weekends anyway. <laughs> so they yeah. Okay, we've got our first guest um, online, and this is Alan. Alan Broughton. Broughton. Is that how you pronounce your last name, Alan? That's right. Yes. He, you got it right. Yeah. <laughs> I stopped that. <laughs> now, Alan, um, you have um, written this book um, about um, agriculture, sustainable living, um, food security, 
and it's probably the first book that we've put together by the, the I think it's a farming community as such, to address some of these um, issues. And you've um, written this book with Elena Garcia, who's um, another person who lives, she lives in um, Queensland, doesn't she? That's right, near Chinchilla in Queensland. And where do you live, Ellen? I live uh, near Bairnsdale in eastern Victoria. Okay, so both regional people. So tell us, uh, what is this, firstly, what's the title of this book? The book is called Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed, Small Farmers, Food Security and Big Business. Okay, Uh, so what are the the views that you're expressing here? Well... Back in the 1980s, there was an excellent book called, uh, produced called Capitalism and the Countryside, mm. which was a really good analysis of, of how farmers are exploited by, by big business. Now, much has happened since 1987 when that was produced. Uh, even I'm not an academic, and I wanted someone else to do a proper book, but in the meantime... I've done this one because I thought there was a necessity for it uh, so that people... And I really wrote it particularly for political activists uh, so that they would have a better understanding about rural issues. Uh, some activists seem to take the, the, um, the idea that there is a, a dichotomy between, between farmers, workers and environmentalists. And... One of the aims of this book is to show that all three groups are victims of the same system and we don't naturally have antagonism to each other and we need to cooperate in order to, uh, to achieve benefits. We all eat, so food should be a major issue for, for everybody. Mm. And, and you talk about um, agribusiness and I know we've had you know, uh, major issues with the the price of milk um, in recent times uh, and a rise in uh, farmers' markets, which I guess uh, is, a, is, is a positive thing. So what is, um, what is it about agribusiness that um, exploits farmers? I mean, people generally understand uh, they bulk buy it, but you've got more details about this. Yes. Well, it happens on different levels. Um, the... the I suppose the main thing is that farmers are one of the few uh, groups in society who have no influence over the price they receive for their product or for their labour. And so it, it makes it very easy for everyone else to extract their profit from the farmers. So that's the retailers, it's the input suppliers, um, the, the big world marketers uh, and the processors. They've all got the ability to um, to decide how much they're going to get, and if you look at the statistics over time, you can see that the percentage of the final product that the farmer gets is just going down and down and down. I use figures in the book comparing 1970 to 2000, and for example, with milk in 1970 the farmer got 55% of a carton of milk. Now it's down to 23%. Hmm, it's a huge drop. gone from 15 down to 4. Yeah. And and this is not... These are not um, 
articles that have been processed any more than they were back in 1970. It's just that the extraction has, has uh, greatly increased. And, and how, how, has, how has that been possible? What's actually, what, what are the mechanisms that are making this huge drop in um, you know, survival, really, for the farmers? Yes, uh, it's, it's a, a complicated thing, and I, I, I don't claim to have a, a very good understanding of it. But what, what has happened is since the era of deregulation and privatisation and, and free trade has come in, which started in the 1980s, um, what it's actually done is increase the competition between farmers on a worldwide basis and decrease the competition between the corporations. And so that has made it easier for, for farmers to be exploited. Now, farmers have always been exploited, um, and it happens around the world. Um, and so it's not totally due this, de- this decline in the, of the, fa- the food dollar going to farmers is a much longer process. It was evident even back in the 1930s. Um, but so it, the blame can't all be put down to uh, deregulation and, and free trade. But that has actually accelerated the process. Whereas the what the, what governments say is that free trade is going to increase the um, the living standards of farmers. Well, it's actually done the opposite. Uh, when the North American Free Trade Agreement came into force between the United States, Canada and, and Mexico... Yeah, NAFTA, yeah. Yes. Um, <clears throat> agricultural exports from Canada actually tripled in that period. So that should have been a boon for Canadian farmers. But at the same time... It accelerated the number of farmers leaving the land and it decreased their incomes. So free trade and increased trade does not, in most cases, actually benefit farmers. The benefit goes to all of those others who are in a better position to extract the profit from the farmers. The middle people, so to speak. The legendary middleman. and <laughs> didn't want to say middleman, <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, well... <laughs> But yes, the, well, that's the, what it is in the legend. But it's it's not just the the middle one. It's it's the, it's more particularly the top ones, mm. which so are the big corporations. It's so it's interesting that this this catch cry, free trade, is free for some people and not so free for other people, isn't it? Well, yes, yes. Um, one of the interesting things about these free trade agreements is that one of the main purposes is to Strengthen things like intellectual property rights, hmm. which is a protection thing. It's not a free trade issue, but it's always put into free trade agreements. So the free trade agreements lessen protection for farmers and increase protection for corporations. Hmm. So the, the large agribusinesses are the ones who profit because they own the um, in-between processes between where the, the food is produced and is finally on the uh, market stalls or supermarket stalls to be sold. So the, there's a lot of um, people who do different things between those two ends. 
Yes, there are. Yes. And then that, yes. that, that, but that would include what washing, um, packaging, uh, transporting, and and things like that. Wouldn't that be yes, right? It does. Yes. Um, but for some things like apples, for example, th- there's not a lot of change in the, in in that's come about over over the last thirty uh, odd years, and yet the the decrease in the price of apples is is right up there with with all the other things like. Farmers used to get 56% of, of, a, of a kilo of apples, and now it's only 17. Hmm. I'd yeah. love to explore exactly how the surplus value from the, the farmers gets transferred to large corporations. Because, in a, you know, if you look at it, fruit pickers and the packaging uh, workers and so on get very little wages. They are some of, I mean, that's where we get all the overseas people who come and, and do the fruit picking for minimum wages, really, and some don't even get that legal minimum wage. Um, and we know that for a fact, and there's so much articles around it. So how that that process of transfer of surplus value from the farmers ends up with the corporations would be a, a journey I'd love to explore at some point. Do you cover that in your book? Uh, n- not not the actual processes. It's <clears throat> it was really beyond my ability, I think, to 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 work through all of those. Yes, things. it's big stuff. Um, <laughs> so I just look at the, the the general things and the. Like the increase in uh, <clears throat> in collusion between the big companies and the amalgamation of corporations, um, and, and also the the lobbying power of these corporations. In fact, in the United States, it's it's really the food corporations of that the, the broad food corporations, like the the big retailers like Walmart and the the pesticide and, and, uh, and other chemical inputters, they actually write food policy. Mm. So they determine the policy of the Environment Protection Agency and of the Food and Drug Administration. Mm. They, they've got tremendous power. Yep. And I didn't actually get to find what the, the connections are in Australia. I know for... In Australia, for um, energy policy, a lot of that energy policy is written by the energy corporation. But I didn't come across good examples of the the crossover between um, agriculture, ag- between agribusiness and uh, and government in Australia. I'm sure it exists, but there's lots and lots of information from the United States showing how like executives from Monsanto will go over to the Food and Drug Administration, write the regulations and mm. then come back to, the, to Monsanto. Mm. This, this crossover is very well known in mm. the United States. And uh, uh, Jacob would like to ask you a question. Yeah, I have yeah. Um, a bit of a question. Um, I'm not sure if your book does have this, but um, in your book it appears you talk a lot about, you know, you know how corporations and how, you know, capitalism, you know, is generally destructive and bad for small farmers. But do you have any, um, does this book cover any sort of accounts of, um, say, resistance? Because um, in Latin America there's some very strong kind of farmer-peasant kind of movements, and I wonder, if does your book sort of comment on anything or relate it, to any of that in any way? It, it does in brief, yes. There's, <clears throat> there's actually a massive farmers' network around the world. The umbrella organisation is called La Via Campesina, which means the farmer's way. And that has got uh, more than 200 million 
farmers in its affiliated organisations. That's huge. Mm. Uh, yes, and that, that organisation, La Via Campesina, has developed very radical policies for, um, for solving these issues. Um, it includes dismantling the World Trade Organisation. <laughs> that would be fun. Rid of, uh, getting rid of free trade agreements. Mm. Um, breaking up corporations, lots of things like that, and also uh, transferring all the all the um, research funding that goes into increasing the inputs of farmers in new technologies, um, transferring that to uh, ecological farming systems, and this is because um, this is one way in which the farmers can dispense with, to quite a large extent, the power of the corporations, and that's just by avoiding them, uh, by setting up their own marketing systems, which includes um, uh, cooperatives and uh, farmers' markets. But um, at at the same time, um, doing a a lot of other things that can increase their power and decrease their reliance on inputs. Mm. The, the other thing, um, Alan, I just thought you could briefly tell us about is how this is um, relevant to food security because there's, there's a lot of um, rumours and, and discussion about this issue um, and most people relate that to increase in population rather than the way farming is conducted and of course all this also cannot you know, be said without talking about the increasing uh, farmer suicides around the world, not just Australia or some, you know, third world country, but it is a phenomenon that's across the world. Um, so this food security business, what, what, what's your, your take on that? Yes, well, I do have a section in the book on food security. Um, <clears throat> governments around the world say we must increase production in order to have food security. But the reality is that the world already produces enough food for the expected population of 250 9 billion people. Mm. All that food is already being produced. Um, The the issue is not... um, It's not production. There's plenty of production. It's on distribution. Mm. And it's on the ability of people to uh, grow their own food or to have the income in order to buy that food. That's what the issue is. It's a social and political issue. It's not a production issue at all. And the, the big corporations and government keep saying we must have more inputs to increase production in order to uh, solve this, uh, this hunger problem in the world. But it's total bullshit. <laughs> it, where... When India became self-sufficient in food yes. um, and became a food exporter, the, the um, number of kilos of, of carbohydrates that people consumed in India actually declined. Mm. It had no positive effect whatsoever on, on, on hunger in India, even though India became totally food secure. Mm. And it's, it's very common that in uh, in m- most food exporting countries, there is quite a large hunger component. In mm. Australia, the, the percentage of people food insecure is 10% of the wow. population. That's large. Which is quite, uh, 
quite significant. Yes. In the United States, it's 20%. Wow. Um, these are people who, at some time, just cannot afford the food that they need. Mm. Okay, um, it, it's uh, coming to um, wrapping up time. But Alan, you, the book is being launched in various parts um, of Victoria and even outside Victoria. Do you? Yes, that's right. So yes, when you sorry, you go on. Uh, the first one is in Bairnsdale. That's my town. That's on March the eighth. Uh, so that's that's next week. Um, the there's a one in Melbourne on the thirtieth uh, of March, and that's at the Multicultural Hub in at five hundred and six Elizabeth Street. So that's March the thirtieth, and then there's others being organised for Newcastle and Armadale and Brisbane mm. uh, in the in the weeks following that. Hmm. So the we. A, sorry, go on. I was just going to say the book is available from the Resistance Centre at. 407 Swanson Street in Melbourne. Yes. So you can actually buy it there. And it's also available online. Uh, if people wish to buy it online, it's all the W's dot resistance books, one word, um, dot com. So you can also buy it online. Okay. Or you can, and you can also pick it up at the Resistance Bookshop at 407 Swanson Street. That's what Alan just said, yeah. but anyway. Yeah, thank you very much, Alan. That's okay. um, an important book uh, for, for now, uh, especially when you've got the rise of the right wing, mm. which is even, uh, it, it's making the corporations' power even mm. much, much more, uh, you know, um, important to address. Uh, yeah, that's right. And organisations like One Nation are actually benefiting from the uh, from the the plight of farmers. Really, they're they're the ones that are trying to answer the call. They don't have the solutions, but uh, farmers tend to be attracted to them to some extent because at least they are talking about it. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Even today, I, I just heard um, over the last couple of days George Christensen talking about sugar farmers. I'm not sure what the issue there is, but they seem to talk about the farmers, but they do very little. Yeah. Well, that's right, and particularly the National Party, which was originally a farmers' party, um, that is that has really taken the um, the the extreme neoliberal approach to to agriculture and and other economic issues which is part of the problem of, of the farming community. Yes, they need to wisen up on these guys. But for those who are interested, the book launch in Melbourne, it's at the Multicultural Hub, which is on the corner of uh, Victoria Parade and um, this, uh, not Swanson, what's, uh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth Street. Yeah. Um, that's on the 30th of March, which is a Thursday. And thank you very much, Alan, uh, on the release okay. of this very important book. And we hope to see you at the book launch. Yes, well, I'll be there. Okay, yes. thank you. Okay, bye. Bye. All right, um, so that was um, Alan Broughton, um, author of um, um, the new book. Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Sorry. Yep. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's only $15. I actually have a copy here in the studio. Um, looks quite nice. I'm looking forward oh, to reading book. it. Yeah. Alright, listeners, um, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we're just um, in the studio with um, Jacob and Lali on 8.55am. 
All right, so um, we've got some time for our next interview um, for some news from the latest copy of Green Left Weekly. Um, um, Lali, do you have an article to share? Yeah, I mean, just for some for a change, let's talk about some positive news. Victoria's new Climate Change um, Act, which is um, good news. So the new act will establish a target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 require five yearly interim emissions targets from 2020 onwards. It will improve accountability and transparency on efforts to cut emissions, which is the first positive thing we've heard from the ALP or any government about tackling the climate change issue. So the act was, uh, was supported by the Greens and the Sex Party and opposed by the Coalition, of course, who also announced their opposition to the Victorian Renewable Energy Target. Surprise, surprise. Um, so that's, that's amazing. But on, on a broader front, um, Australia fizzles on global clean energy scoreboard. And I guess when you've got um, governments like the coalition, that's expected. But um, apparently Australia's uh, rank... Um, it, it, it equals at 15th place overall um, in a new World Bank scoreboard on the sustainable energy tied with five other countries in the bottom group of wealthy OECD countries. Now, that says something, doesn't it? It's all the rich countries, they do nothing for, the, for climate change, and they expect the, the so-called developing nations to sacrifice their standard of living to appease the rich countries. But the regulatory indicators for sustainable energy rates, um, country performances in renewable energy, energy efficiency and access to modern energy using 27 indicators and 80 sub-indicators. Australia joins Chile, Argentina as the only um, OECD, the uh, high-income countries without some form of carbon pricing mechanism. It rates equal... 13th on energy efficiency and 24th on the renewable energy. But then, you know, pricing uh, carbon is not going to be one that's going to solve the problem. It's got to be policies that are more effective, particularly when there's a barrier reef bleaching going on, um, which is part of this whole picture of climate change. So there's uh, newly bleached corals have been discovered near Townsville and vast swathes. swathes of uh, Great Barrier Reef have been uh, placed on alert level one by the U.S. Um, National Oceanic and Et- Atmospheric Administration's Coral Reef Watch for the next four weeks, meaning that coral bleaching is likely. Parts of the reef are on the, on the even higher alert level two, um, indicating um, mortally is, mortality is likely. So that's a picture of climate change, although Victoria has um, certainly made some concrete progress. Um, the rest of the country is uh, lagging behind and, in fact, getting worse, especially around the barrier reef. And that's a big question that we go on to address um, when we talk about the Adani um, fight back. I think there's um, an article here about the protests where some people um, have been protesting against Westpac, which is uh, supporting Adani in opening this world's largest Mm. coal mine in Queensland. So in Sydney, um, there were... You know, a, a large, um, I think, two two hundred odd people. Um, the they're from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. 
and um, they uh, had mobilized and other organizations also um, organized this mobilization in front of Westpac to protest their um, uh, generous contribution to Adani into establishing the mine and, and you know we, we actually talked about Adani's corruption and the destruction he's caused around the world a couple of weeks ago when we interviewed the people from the Oceanic, <coughs> Ocean Conserv- Conservation Movement. But yeah, so that's um, a bit of a sad story. But the other thing I really want to talk about is an issue that has not um, hit the main uh, mainstream media. Maybe it has, I haven't noticed. It's about 65 workers at the Pamela Dairy Factory in Uchuka, Victoria, uh, who've been locked out since 18th of January. We haven't heard anything in mainstream media, have we? I mean, I haven't heard anything. Mm. You know, so it's, it's something that's been ignored, uh, unlike the CUB protest where a similar number of workers were, you know, um, put to the test, so to speak. So Pamela is a national dairy company. And uh, its brands include Paul's, Oaks, and Valia. So in February last year, it was brought by, bought by French-based company Lactalis and the largest, the largest dairy manufacturing company in the world. And Ima- Emmanuel Besnia, CEO of Lactalis, has a personal worth of 6.7 billion. And in 2005, Pamela Australia sale, Pamela Australia sales were 1.65 billion dollars. So in July, it presented the union unions representing workers at Uchoka plant, the ETU and the AMWU, with an enterprise agreement. Logo claims that rep- represented a major attack on wage rates and employment conditions. So in October, the uh, Palmer lodged an uh, application with the Fair Commission, saying that in public interest at the Commonwealth to terminate the existing agreement. And this application was lodged with the Commission only five weeks after the agreement nominally expi- uh, nominal expiry date. The company proposed a 9% wage rise over three years for existing workers on the condition they all, that all new hired workers would be paid 20% less. Mm. Uh, it's just atrocious what these people do to workers. And um, union members at the plant unanimously rejected the proposal and announced a four-hour strike. The company um, responded on the 18th of January by shutting down operations, locking out the workers and declaring the site um, and, it would, and said that it would not reopen until the dispute was um, resolved. So if the Fair Work Commission, or the Unfair Work Commission, as some people call it, approves this application, New Pamela Yuchuka uh, employees will be paid $8 an hour or about $320 a week less in wages that, than current workers, which is criminal. And they wonder why people live on the streets. When you cut people's wages drastically like that, of course they end up working on the, living on the bloody streets. Especially for hard um, work like that. I so. know, it's very hard work. And, um, and we just finished talking to, to Alan about the, the plight of farmers in the countryside. And this is what happens when you've got workers in the countryside who are working their butt off and it never hits the media. Hmm. This is a, a huge abuse of workers and, and it's, it's an assault on working conditions and wages for, for the people in the rural areas. And this divide, city rural divide is, is just telling when you look at news like this. So the lockout has, has begun, of course. Yep. And, um, 
during the recent heat wave, uh, where there's 40, 40 degrees centigrade, Pamela turned off the tap and the workers had to use, um, had used to keep everyone hydrated in that area. So the workers of strong community support and the camp was saved from running dry by the generosity of local water, um, Carter, or who donated a 10,000 liter water tanker, which is now parked at the front of the, the site, of course. So union members from Nuchika are, um, are traveling to Bendigo to speak to employees, employers, sorry, uh, no, employees um, at the Palmlat site. So they received a strong support and so on. Secretary of the National Food Division of the MW, Tom Hale, has said that there are um, holdings solid and we're going to here and we're going to be here until we get this fixed. Palma tried to get the current workforce to agree to a system that would effectively create two-tiered system, which is of course totally gross. Never mind unfair. So for those who want to support um, the strike, they should get in touch with the MWU Food um, Division and the ETU if you want to express your support. And, and certainly these workers um, deserve the support. As, and um, as you heard before, Alan Broughton. Uh, explained the exploit, the level of exploitation of, of workers like this, uh, which eventually get passed on to large corporations which earn billions of profit every year. So that was an angry part of that. Um, yeah. I have a bit me. of a news, <laughs> uh, news um, article to share um, from the latest Green Leaf Weekly, and this is actually kind of like a very ongoing, not really talked about that much, and well, it is talked about in the mainstream area, this whole, um, the whole issue of drug legislation. Um, and basically this article is um, there's a push is um, underway to set up a safe injecting room um, in the Melbourne su- suburb of Richmond to reduce the number of fatal overdoses of drug um, users. Um, you know, th- we right now in the context we have the state coroner and other medical um, professionals supporting this. Um, the sex party um, MP Fiona Patton has introduced a private members bill to set up a trial safe injecting room, which was debated in state parliament February 22nd, and you know this bill is backed by um, the um, the Greens, um, but Labor and the Liberals remain opposed. With the Labor Premier Daniel Andrews has rejected State Coroner Jockey Hawkins' support for a safe injecting room to help reduce deadly um, drug overdoses. A core supported by the Victorian branch of the AMA. Um, the coroner recommendations were made as part of an inquiry into the fatal overdose of a 33-year-old woman, um, woman in North Richmond. The death came amid 34 fatal overdoses in Richmond over the past year. A supervised injecting facility offers users a place to inject drugs with sterile equipment with staff on standby to administer, um, administer help in, in the case of an overdose. And, of course, um, there are more than 70 such rooms operating around the world, including a room operating in Sydney since 2001. There's never been a fatal overdose at Sydney's room, despite the facility managing more than 6,500 overdoses. Um, and, of course, unsurprisingly, people you know whose, um, um, whose relatives have died of drug overdoses are, are actually supporting these calls mm. you know, for safe injected <clears throat> rooms. Um, and um, so there is actually um, a petition um, that you, we, you can support for um, for this call for a safe injecting room in Richmond, and that is at supervisedinjectingrichmond.org.au. Um, but, yeah, I think this is a very important issue, and especially um, if you look in the, um, the state of, of, like, say, the United States, 
um, and how the war on drugs has, you know, cost, you know, basically effectively criminalising illicit drug use has basically, you know, caused so much harm and, and yet there's all this evidence that suggests these measures would actually do far more to, do, um, to save lives than... Um, than what um, what these um, what criminalisation is currently do- policies are currently doing. I know it's just appalling. As a nurse, I find this this archaic conservative opposition to something that will save lives totally intolerable. I think we should put on these guys <coughs> to work in emergency departments when these kids arrive, you know, um, having overdosed themselves. That might teach them something. It just, I just, I, I'm lost for words. I. I I'm too close to the, to the issue to even talk about it. I get too angry. Mm-hmm. But there's an article here by Jim Mac, McElroy on um, an interesting, I, I find that doubly interesting because, um, well, you, you'll see why it's interesting. The, the um, former Queensland Labor Premier, Anna Bly, has been appointed at the C- as the CEO of the Australian Bankers Association. How's that? for um, revealing the truth about where the policies of the ALP sits. I wonder if she's a mem- still a member of the ALP. That would be interesting to find out, wouldn't it? So it's, it just seems so outrageous, but um, the link between government and ex-government officials and big business becomes clearer on a daily basis when you see articles like this. So the four Australian banks to head off a looming royal commission into their crimes and mis- uh, misdeeds have done this. And... Um, <clears throat> it seems our banks are critical to the strength and stability of our nation, national economy and the prosperity and well-being of every Australian, according to Anna Bly. Um, we all rely on our banks for the most important financial decisions of our lives, so we want a system that is open, fair and trustworthy. I wonder if she applies that to the bank itself. That would be worthwhile looking at, wouldn't it? But I'm excited by this, she says, apparently. And it's an opportunity to lead and shape the reforms needed to strengthen public trust and confidence in our banking system. And that's an interest, uh, oxymoron in a sense because people are so disgusted with the banks, with their massive profits and exploitation of the poor people with the fees they charge for just about as soon as you touch the ATM, you, you end up paying a fee. Um, most Australians... Um, you know, they rely on the banks for the most important financial decisions, but what do they get? They get ripped off big time. That's, that's a reality. So the mega banks are cutting their workforces and they're paying the executives huge salaries and bonuses, which the government chooses to ignore, despite the fact that they chose to reprimand, um, the CEO of, of, um, Post Australia. They don't, they don't look at the banks. Um, don't say a word because I guess they think it's private so we shouldn't interfere which is a double standards um, but anyway so Anna Bly apparently wasted no time in rejecting the calls for federal labor leader Bill Shorten and the Greens for a royal commission to the banks so there you go a turncoat so to speak so it's clear that the government has heard those calls and that's why they've established a number of inquiries at this currently underway so the Royal Commission has been held according to this so the appointment of Annabelle to head the ABA is a, t- a tactical move by the banks to attempt to put pressure on Labour 
to back off their demands for royal commission, which threatens to be a very dangerous expose or exposure of the bank crimes and could lead to moves for much greater public scrutiny and control of the banks. So that will be an interesting article to see, to read for those people who are interested in this area. Um, so the executives would not be paid in the millions, jobs would stay, interest rates would not be manipulated for profits, and some banks don't even follow the general interest rate level set by the, the Reserve Bank anyway. So oh, there's a lot of issues there. So those who are interested, it's in the latest copy of Green Left Weekly. Yeah. Um, we have uh, five minutes before we have to go to the activist calendar, um, but I guess I'll, we can go. We've talked a lot about um, local news. Um, haven't really talked about what's happening internationally. No, we haven't. Have we? Um, but um, this is one of the front page articles um, against. Uh, you know, it's, it's about Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done Trump Watch today yet. <laughs> um, well, this is um, this is an article um, basically um, about um, you know titled Trump Attacks Met with Growing Unity. Um, you know, Mohammed Himish um, writes um, here from Telesur um, that, you know, marginalised communities from Native Americans to black Ameri- people to Muslims and Latin immigrants who, you know, they're people who have suffered under successive US governments for centuries are now, you know, up against a new aggressive and blunt attack by President Donald Trump. Um, you know, Donald Trump has, you know, rolled back a slew of rights in just weeks in office, has, but he's also sparked... Uh, um, stroke the sparks of a new resistance across identity lines with the potential to draw on diverse histories of oppression and struggle. Um, in you know just one month, Trump signed executive orders that ga- gave more power to law enforcement officers across the United States, revived the Dakota Pot Access and Keystone XL pipelines, hurting Native Americans and land as well as the planet, and placed a ban on visitors from seven Muslim-majority countries and all refugees worldwide. Um, and yeah, the, the, it's uh, but of course you know in the face of all these attacks, you know there's newfound unities being born between Black, Native American, and Muslim communities to stand up against the Trump um, administration. Activists from these communities say, um, and um, Al- Alicia Garcia, who was one of the free co-founders of the Black Anti-Police um, Brutality Movement, Black Lives Matter, told Telesu, you know, when asked about the unity between these historically oppressed communities, um, Black People are also undocumented immigrants. We are Muslim, we are Indigenous, and more. And he had, she adds um, that black people are a central part of every fight that we see today. Gaza said that black, um, black Lives Matter was pushing back against the Trump administration through building relationships with other communities impacted by the Trump administration and devising, devising strategies to bring more people into the movement. Um, and, of course... Uh, she says here that, you know, no justice or progress for African-Americans could come from Trump's land as he has surrounded himself with corporate CEOs, billionaires and retired military personnel, none of whom have any track record whatsoever in solving the problems that exist in, in our communities. And then she says, you know, as Trump targets Muslims, we must remember that in the case of the Muslim ban, black and Muslim are not necessarily separate categories. Um, Trump signed the new... Um, now suspended travel ban in his um, second week in office. People with green cards and valid visas were stopped at the airports across the country, sparking huge protests. A federal judge in Washington state then suspended Trump's executive order. It's funny, but he's talking about being stopped at the airport. Trump's two sons were stopped in a Canadian yeah. airport for having a relationship with the dictator when they were returning from Saudi Arabia. Sorry. And um, so, yeah, and then... then um, 
then um, on the topic of Native American solidarity, um, Native Americans are also working to support the struggles of other oppressed nations. And, he, and one LeBlanc says that our greatest solidarity is to work in our own communities to become sanctuary communities. Yep. I'm referring to communities that declare themselves safe haven for undocumented migrants targeted for deportation. She said Native American ty- tribes in Arizona were discussing plans to protect Protest immigrants, protect, not protest, <laughs> um, protect immigrants crossing the border from deportations by taking them into the Native American reservations, which are beyond federal and state control. And of course, much work needs to be done across racial and ethnic groups, but many point to the potential for a united progressive movement that can not only take on the hate spewing administration, but also fight to transform the United States into a true democracy in a socially just multi-ethnic state. Mm. And there's another couple of things um, on Trump Watch, which we decide to do regularly. One is um, there, was, there were many thousands of protesters on marches across the USA with the slogan, not my president, and was considered not my president day across the US. And there's report, reports of thousands of people joining that one. That, that protest. Um, and the other interesting phenomenon that's taking place that we don't hear about is since um, Trump's electoral victory, uh, the socialist groups have joined up many thousands of extra people. And um, one organization, the Democratic Socialists of America's deputy director, said the group's membership has soared to 16,000, more than doubling since May last year. In the past two weeks alone, more than 2,000 new members have registered. So that's good news. That means the fight back is actually solidifying, mm. and people are thinking much more clearly about what is it's happening to the U.S. since um, the actions or the activities of, of Trump in relation to all the executive orders he's been signing left, right, and center. The revolutionary socialist group, Socialist Alternative, also said that its membership has grown by more than 30% since Trump's inauguration. And the Socialist Party, um, USA National Secretary of Estado, Al Jazeera, Jazeera, that it had uh, a solid spike from uh, right out of the elections, although nationally socialists are weak as an organized force. Um, an April 2016 study by Harvard University has found that 51% of millennials, a uh, loosely defined group by, of people aged between 18 and 29, reject capitalism, and 33% support capitalism, which is amazing news coming out of America. So mm-hmm. do you want to go to the activist calendar quickly before yep. we go to the next interview? Um, okay, so now you're... I've got list- a few and you've got a few. Yep. I guess I'll start with um, this Friday and Saturday. Today, um, today, I, um, so t- today um, there will be a no homeless ban all night campout, um, which will be going to from 4 p.m. to 12 a.m. Um, that will be at the town hall at the corner of Collins and Swanson Street, and um, we're also encouraging any people who are planning to attend that to bring food. Um, part of the reason why is um, part um, the council has implemented is um, in along with these new bylaws. Are planning some kind of education campaign to basically, you know, discourage people from giving homeless people on the streets food, and so we're gonna we're going to basically bring attention to that fact through, you know, the sharing of food on this occupation on uh, Towns Hall. Okay, the other news um, for the 19th of no, I shouldn't go to the 9th of March. Let's do fourth. It's a theatre. Um, it starts, actually, sorry, let's start again. March the 1st um, through to um, 
today. There's theatre for those who are interested. It's called The Age of Bones. And it's uh, about um, 60 Indonesian boys who were jailed in Australia for working on refugee boats. And it's written by Darwin writer Sandra Thibodeau, um, was inspired by the real-life stories of uh, these kids, a collaboration between Satu Bulan, which is one moon from Australia, and uh, Theatre Satu from Indonesia. So if you want to see that uh, delightful um, theatre, it's at the La Mama Courthouse. Tickets are $25, um, full and $15 concession for booking. Please ring La Mama, of course. It's uh, 93476142. And the 4th of um, Saturday, there's a rally against Trump. Say no to racism and Islamophobia at 1 p.m. State Library at Thornton Street, of course, is organized by Australia Says No to Trump. That's the 4th of March, which is Saturday. Over to you. Um, there'll be um, George Mann um, will be singing songs of work and struggle. He's a uh, pretty. F- he's not. He wouldn't be considered famous in mainstream movie, but he's a pretty famous monster activist. Um, and he will. Um, he will be. He's coming from the United States to sing um, to inspire you know more people to get involved in the struggle and featuring Ezekiel Ox as a guest. They'll be at 7 p.m. at the Trades Hall on corners of Ligon Street and Victoria Street. What day is it? Uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, yeah. Okay. March 4th. And of course, the other important event coming up, I might as well announce it, being a woman, is International Women's Day. Next Wednesday at 3CR, we're having an all-day event, and there'll be, um, actually, there's going to be an exciting panel um, from 7 o'clock in the morning, and there'll be lots of interviews and activities, and, and people can drop in for um, a snack in the morning uh, breakfast time. Food's been organized, and there are special interviews. Of, of, of course, it's uh, focused on women's issues. Uh, do drop into 3CR, and when you come in, if you can, join up as members, because we have got a sub-drive um, going uh, between well, this two weeks, the 13th to the 19th, um, so people who um, want to join up, they'll be more, they're more than welcome. So that's the 8th of March, uh, International Women's Day. Uh, it's an important um, day for women. And there's a march occurring on that day at 5.30 p.m. at Parliament, and it will later march to Trades Hall. So International Women's Day, meet at Parliament House, those who wish to join the march after work, uh, Parliament House, and then off to Trades Hall after a few speeches. Now, on the same day, we also have another um, rally, Defend and Extend Public Housing, at 12 noon at the same venue, Parliament House, Spring Street. Mm. So it's a very busy Wednesday on the 8th of March. There'll be another rally following um, that um, on the 9th of March, um, Stop the War on on Workers, Our Wages, Safety and Rights Under Attack, Let's Hit the Street, um, hosted by the CFMEU. That is going to be at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at the Shrades Hall. Mm. So there's another book launch on the 16th of March. We talked about um, the uh, book launch by, written by Ellen Broughton and Broughton and uh, Elena Garcia, which had the title of um, it's a longish title. It was um, Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed at the Multicultural Hub on the 30th of March um, in the evening. And uh, it's at the corner of um, Sydney Road and uh, Victoria Parade. The other book launch, which is also a very interesting one, the title is In Search of Paul Robeson. 
um, Jeff Sparrow's new book. It will be launched by Tony Birch at 5.30 on the 16th of March uh, at uh, the Bella Union Bar Trades Hall, corner of Ligon and Victoria Street. And please um, do come. Um, it's the, if you want to ring, ring Daniela, 9388. 8787 if you need further information. That's, so that's another book launch on the 16th of March. Um, there'll be on the Sunday, March 19th, there'll be a launch of Sue Bo- uh, Moreland Socialist Alliance Councillor Sue Bolton's new op- office in Moreland. Um, so there'll be live acoustic music, a meal and bar, and they'll be at 1 p.m. Um, entry is free from the pep- at the Pepper Street um, place, which is the corner of Ograte Street and Sydney Road. Um, and um, so yeah, if you're interested, RSVP to Sue at zero four one three three seven seven nine seven eight. On Monday, the the second twentieth um, of March, there'll be um, live readings of feminist texts, decolonizing feminism, building solidarity. Um, where there'll be live readings of um, different feminist texts by a selection of diverse feminist educators, students, and practitioners. Um, and that will be featuring um, guest speakers like Claire Land and actor slash director Candy Bowers. And that's at 5.30pm at um, VU in the Community, 138 Nicholson Street, Footscray, and hosted by Loving Feminist Literature. On Saturday, um, April 1st, um, Ezekiel Ox will be doing a tour. Um, the activist artist will be hitting um, at the Evelyn Hotel at 351 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. I presume that's at a night time because I don't have um, actually have a um, don't actually have a, a time there. On Saturday, the 8th of April, um, we have, there'll be uh, a day of discussion on finding for a better world, but politics after Trump, building resistance, and that will be on all day at the site works at 33 Saxon Street, Brunswick. For more info, phone 96398622. Um, on following that, the, on Sunday, the 9th of April, there'll be a Palm Sunday Walk for Justice for Refugees at 2pm at the State Library. Okay, I just, uh, there was a call from one of the listeners, which is nice to hear. Listeners actually listening to the program, correcting my um, fumbling on the address on the launch of the book Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed by Alan Broughton and, and Alan Garcia. The multicultural hub is on the corner of Elizabeth Street and Victoria Parade, and it's opposite the big market. So thank you, whoever rang in. So shall we move on to the interview? It's on line four. Yep, line four. Yeah, and we've got Louise Byrne. Online um, now, Louise is representing the, um, or she's speaking on behalf of the West Papuan community in Melbourne. Good morning, Louise. Good morning. How are you? Good, good, good. Welcome to 3CR, and again, <laughs> I've interviewed you before. <laughs> uh, good to have you online. And uh, now, lots, lots of developments with the West Papuan struggle, I believe. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, the last I heard was that the uh, Melanesian Spearhead Group uh, was considering a membership of the uh, West Papuan government. Yes. Um, and there's some updates you want to give us. Okay. Well, um, one of the um, aims of a, an independence movement like West Papua, which has developed uh, its state as a declarative state, um, is to get recognition. Um, by other states and so that has actually taken place with the Melanesian Spearhead Group which is... Um, Louise, do you want to stay a little bit away from your earpiece because it's coming across a bit uh, uh, gruffy? 
Okay. Uh, is that better? Yeah, that's better. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, one uh, one of the um, uh, aims of a, a movement like West Papua's movement for independence is to develop relations with other states so that it's a form of recognition. Um, this is, um, didn't happen for so long with West Papua because mm. it's such a, a suppressed um, struggle, but eventually did in, in the last couple of years with the Melanesian Spearhead Group. And the Melanesian Spearhead Group is of the uh, states in the, in the Pacific, like um, Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, um, the Kanaki of New Caledonia, um, and Fiji, of course. And so it's been a very long um, and difficult process because Papua New Guinea and, and uh, Vanuatu are somewhat under the financial sway of the Indonesian Republic. Of course. Most people know. Mm. But anyway, it has happened now. They've got an office in the Melanesian Spearhead Group, uh, uh, the Melanesian Secretariat down there in Vanuatu, and um, they've paid their dues. Uh, membership dues and so that has happened and it's had this um, bouncing effect really because it's um, uh, now there are there is a Pacific coalition um, of states for West Papua's independence and their sole purpose is to have West Papua relisted in the United Nations decolonisation list. Of course, yes. Which, from which it was removed in 1969. Mm. Um, so now a really dramatic outcome of that was um, just yesterday actually at the Human Rights Council meeting, UN Human Rights Council meeting in Geneva mm -hmm. and that coalition um, uh, stood up very strongly and made a report um, um, against, uh, against what Indonesia is doing in West Papua. So uh, it's kind of, and because it's the Human Rights Council, well, because it's the UN body, um, it's broadcast around the world on um, uh, on the UN uh, Web TV program. So that was um, like major victory. Big pardon? A major victory. Well, a major yes, I suppose yes. Um, the UN, UN Human Rights Council is sort of really getting legs. It was formed in 2006, and um, it's it's has a, one of its mechanisms is the Universal Periodic Review. They call it the UPR. And uh, states have to stand accountable to reports made by um, special rapporteurs, independent um, experts, member groups, NGOs. And uh, what um, Ronald Wassell, who's the Minister of Justice, he was the spokesperson yesterday for this Pacific Coalition, said Indonesia has proved itself incapable of uh, re responding to the criticisms, um, which was very strong. Um, he mentioned crimes against humanity. Um, it was a very strong six-minute report, and um, all the... Behind his public statement, of course, are all these other reports by the special rapporteurs and independent experts and NGOs. So there's building up this kind of... Um, comprehensive case against Indonesia, which is one side of the struggle, the resistance, and then the other side of the struggle is the nation-making um, advances um, by the West Papuans themselves. So I think we're actually really in a very good position mm. um, to uh, move forward. Um, so uh, it's probably really the best position they've been in since 
1962, I guess. Yeah, which is yes. really good news. Yes. yes, yes. And I also believe that, I mean, I think for listeners who may not have um, caught up with what's happened in, in, in um, West Papua, is that 1969 invasion by Indonesia, and um, half a million West Papuans have been killed, and the atrocities by the Indonesian military continues in West Papua. Today, people are killed um, on a daily basis, um, apparently. Yes, and yes, yes. Yeah, and um, so the, the, the genocide reports are building up. It's very hard to um, write or get the data yes. for, to, to write a genocide report. But they're still, and, and sort of one step behind that is the crimes against humanity. Yes, of course. Uh, so they're sort of building up, and, and international support around the world is really high when you're across what's happening in each country and then. Um, across these intergovernmental kind of organisations like like the Melanesian Spearhead Group, this Pacific Coalition, then you've got this um, the African Caribbean Pacific Group. Yes, which not I was going to ask you. Heard about. Mm. Um, it's a really big body of of states that meet, and they've actually um, working very closely with the uh, European Union on on West Papua. So. Um, you know, if you if you add up all the countries within the African, Caribbean, Pacific, you're getting quite a large number mm, of mm. of UN member states. And ultimately, I think the um, uh, what has to happen through that process is that when you put a motion into the General Assembly, you're supported by two thirds of the states. Mm, which so, is fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think we're we're well and truly on the move now. Yes, yeah. and 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 the fact that you know, the, I I think the crucial point in the struggle for the West Papuans, um, I guess, is um, the role of Australia and its support for the Indonesian government um, from the very beginning of its invasion of West Papua, and we in Australia have a responsibility to. Uh, contact, you know, those who want to help should contact their local MPs to talk about this because Australia has continued to support Indonesia for economic purposes, ignoring the human rights violations Indonesia has conducted in West Papua for a long time. That is since 1969. That's about 50 odd years now. Uh, well, no, even longer years. actually. Longer, <laughs> yeah. And so, um, but, I mean, I think it was the, the um, support of um, What's his name? Um, oh, Edwin Edmund Barwick. Hmm. His name way back in 1962, who was a very influential uh, Attorney General, and and he was the UN representative, Australia's UN representative. And it was actually him who um, through changed Australian policy from supporting the self-determination program set up by the Dutch in hmm. West Papua to swinging in behind the. Indonesian occupation of West Papua. That's right, I forgot that. Yeah, yeah. so um, it's been long and unchanging since, and only a couple of days ago when the Indonesian president was down here, you heard our our Prime Minister talking about uh, respect for territorial integrity and Indonesia's sovereignty. That's <laughs> code for keep stamping down on West Papua. Yes. And one thing Australians can do is really push for the overturn of the Lombok Treaty mm. signed in 2006. Yeah, because that's where um, it's said in Clause 2.3 that uh, Australia and Indonesia have to support, uh, have to, um, what do you call it, suppress, like not allow, outlaw 
the raising of the morning star flag. Yes. So it's a great violation of even our rights, let alone the West Papuan. Yes. We'll, we'll catch up on this again because I think the flag was originally raised on the 1st of December for 10 days when West Papuans felt that they were free. And I can't remember the year, but that's a significant day for the West Papuans, isn't it, uh, Louise? Yes, 1st of December 1961. Yes, we need to do something about that later on. Okay. But the other thing I wanted to actually raise quickly is how hypocritic the Australian government is. You know, it, it imposes all these standards on other countries like China and the Spratly Islands and so on in terms of... Um, the boundaries and the integrity of nations, but it hasn't considered how its activities are in direct contradiction of that in relation to not just West Papua, but also to East Timor in the oil um, reservoirs in, in, in the East Timor Sea, and that's been renegotiated, of course. But it's, it, and, uh, you know, it, it's glaring, the contradiction. is one rule for us and one rule for other people. The rules seem to still apply when it comes to our very closest neighbours, doesn't it? Well, it's, it's, uh, actually, when you're out lobbying um, internationally, it's, it's really embarrassing to come from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> yes, because, uh, you know, anyone who, who dearly doesn't want to hear just says, brings up this litany of, um, of, of sins by Australia and, just, and you're, you can almost be left legless. You know. <laughs> yes, well, it, it ranges in all sectors, including human rights, the way we treat refugees. And, yes. and there are quite a few West Papuans who are in the refugee list as well, aren't there? Yes, that's right. It's yeah. an absolute disgrace. But anyway, um, we've got to just keep on pushing and fighting, don't we? Yep. Thank you very much, Louise. That's okay. a good update. But we'll, we'll talk to you again because I believe Jack, Jacob Rumbiak, the foreign minister who actually resides at or has, has an office in Docklands, um, has gone to Africa. Uh, so we'll get some feedback on that when he returns. But we also want to encourage people to help the uh, office sustain itself. And they've got a um, rent assistance program. What, what do you call it? Rent, uh, rent assistance program. An open day. Is that, uh, oh, sorry. Well, the office in Dockland. Yes. Um, which, uh, so that's supported by what's called a rent collector. Rent collectors. That's the word yes. I, I was and missing. They sort of can buy shares into the future, if that's a way of putting it, with $30 a month. Yes, a dollar a day. It's a beautiful um, five-star energy office, so it's very inspiring for the Papuans and for the activists that work there, yeah. Mm, And it's it's a lovely place. You have lots of activities there, too. For those who are interested in in supporting the cause of the West Papuans, Mm. you want to give people the office number, Louise? Uh, Yes. I just have to look it up because I can never remember. Um, <laughs> it's um, uh, nine. Uh, hang on. Oh gosh, this Let is me get black, it. isn't it? Um, I've, no, I've got it here now, and it's nine o four nine nine five nine o, and it's down in the Lifestyle Building in Dockland. Okay, did you get the number? Nine o four nine. Yes. Nine five nine zero. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. And we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Bye, Lalita. Okay, bye. Okay, now we are nearing the end of the program. Another couple of minutes. No, any last minute um, things um, to fill in? I think because um, next Friday, um, International Women's Day would... Next uh, Wednesday. Next Wednesday would, would have already passed. So I think it would be good to read out um, basically what's happening in the United States right now is there's... Yes. It's actually triggered a big sort of um, boom in the women's movement. Yes. And um, there's going to be, um, there is a call for an international women's strike. Um, 
um, on the 8th of March, um, and this is um, this is a state, and especially in the US, and this is a statement. Um, so the international, um, this is a state uh, um, statement f- or platform of the International Women's Strike the US, um, and they say and it says here the International Women's Strike on March 8 is an international day of action planned and organised by women in more than. Um, 30 different countries. In the spirit of solidarity internationalism in the United States, March 8 will be a day of action organised by and for women who have been marginalised and silenced by decades of neoliberalism directed towards working women, women of colour, native women, disabled women, immigrant women, Muslim women, lesbian, queer and trans women. March 8 will be the start of a new international feminist movement that organises resistance not just against Donald Trump and his misogynist policies, but also against the conditions that produced Trump, economic inequality, racial and sexual violence and imperial wars. We celebrate the diversity of the many social groups that have come together... Um, that have come together for the International Women's Strike. We come from many political traditions, but are united around the common, um, around the following common principles. Um, an end to gender violence. Um, all women deserve a life free of violence, both domestic and institutional. Working women, trans women and women of colour face the worst aspects of um, direct institutionalised violence. Against all such state and personal violence, we demand that our lives and labour be treated with dignity, for they form the basis of this society. Um, the second um, one is reproductive justice for all. We stand for full reproductive justice for all women, cis and trans. We want complete autonomy over our bodies and full reproductive freedom. Um, lay, and I'll skip a bit to labour rights. Um, labour and it says here, labour rights are women's rights because women's paid labour in the workforce. Workplace and unpaid layer of the home is the basis of wealth in our society. And um, elaborates further, around the world, moons of women are, first, uh, are forced to work for slave wages and dangerous sweatshops that kill thousands every year. In the US, 46% of union members are women and a majority are um, women of colour. Um, all women, irrespective of citizenship, sexuality or race, must have equal pay for equal work, free universal childcare, paid maternity leave, sick leave, paid family leave, and the freedom to organise a fighting union in the workplace. Um, next thing on social, full social provisioning, um, decades of neoliberal policies have involved violent dismantling of social provisioning that has affected all women, as our working lives have been made increasingly precarious. Social services that might have provided a safety net against such harsh exploitation of labour have either been attacked or removed completely. Against such attacks, we demand an expansive restructuring of the welfare system to serve the needs of the majority, such as universal health care, robust unemployment and social security benefits, and free education for all. The next thing here is um, on um, anti-racism and anti-imperialism. Against the anti-white supremacists in the Trump administration, the far-right and anti-Semites they have given confidence to, we stand for an uncompromising anti-racist and anti-colonial feminism. And then there's um, the last point principle is around environmental justice. We believe that both social inequality and environmental degradation are due to an economic system that puts profit before people. We demand instead that the Earth's natural resources be preserved and sustained to enrich our lives and those of our children. And the the emancipation of women and the emancipation of the planet must go hand in hand. So that's all the end of the statement there. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our program. Um, Time for uh, Beyond Your Emissions to um, take over the studio. Let's thank uh, Louise Byrne from the uh, West Papuan um, 
organization. Um, and the other interview was with Alan Broughton, who is launching a book. And I've been corrected again, kindly, by somebody. It's the, the multicultural hub is on the corner of Victoria Street and um, opposite uh, Victoria Street and um, uh, Elizabeth Street. Opposite the Victoria Markets. Thanks well, for Since it's um, weeks away, um, we'll be sure to be correct for the next several weeks when we publicise the book launch. Yeah, we will. Thank you for listening. And as we said before, the sub drive is on, or membership drive is on, for those people who want to um, attain membership of 3CR to support the alternative radio, of course, and the People Powered Radio. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Yep. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call one 800 634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Thank you for listening. You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au.